This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Jeff Begays, and this is America Change Forever. On this episode, we're going to look at this nation's now intensifying battle against domestic terrorists. That is a loaded phrase, I know, because what it means depends on who you talk to, and it can often lead to heated debates. But... It is a discussion members of Congress have been having. The Biden administration, civil rights groups are having it too. Supporters of former President Trump and even academics are studying the issue in the months after January 6th. If you're going to take on the kind of violence that we saw on January 6th and the threats that law enforcement is facing today, don't you have to call it for what it is? Or do you avoid the debate over whether to call January 6th insurrectionist domestic terrorists altogether. Why not just go a step further and just compare them to the Ku Klux Klan, as the NAACP and some members of Congress are doing? I hope this episode makes you think about that term, domestic terrorist, and what it means to you. For months now, FBI Director Christopher Wray has talked about the increasing threat posed by domestic terrorists here in the U.S. We continue to see individuals radicalized here at home by jihadist ideologies espoused by foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS and al-Qaeda, what we would call homegrown violent extremists. But we're also countering lone domestic violent extremists, radicalized by personalized grievances ranging from racial and ethnic bias to anti-government, anti-authority sentiment to conspiracy theories. There is no doubt about it, today's threat is different from what it was 20 years ago, and it will almost certainly continue to change. And to stay in front of it, we've got to adapt, too. And that's why, over the last year and a half, the FBI has pushed even more resources to our domestic terrorism investigations. This week, in a wide-ranging interview during the Global Security Forum, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was asked by veteran investigative journalist Michael Isikoff about domestic terrorism in an interview that, frankly, I don't think has gotten enough attention. I'd like to start with the continued fallout from January 6th. Um, And uh, as you recall, back in the summer when the January 6th committee held its first hearing, um, several of the uh, Capitol Police officers testified, and one of them repeatedly referred to the individuals who stormed the Capitol that day as terrorists. Is that the right word to to use to describe the people involved in the January 6th riot? So, um, Michael, there are uh, criminal prosecutions pending. There are criminal investigations pending. And I cannot, uh, uh, you know, really add a label uh, to the conduct that's under review. I've got to respect the integrity and the independence of the investigative and prosecutorial processes. 
I will say this. I will say this, that, you know, taking a step back, uh, really, because one of the things that I've been giving a lot of thought to and I've started to comment upon is the fact that our work in the Department of Homeland Security really lands at the epicenter of the nation's divide. And that divide is wide. And the divisiveness itself is something that we have to watch because it does fuel a certain level of chatter on the internet, on social uh, media, and in other fora. And it is um, both remarkable and remarkably sad to me that we have a storming of the Capitol. We have language uh, uttered that speaks of uh, an effort or a threat to hang the Vice President of the United States and otherwise kill the Speaker of the House. And we as a country cannot unite around condemnation of that. Do we need a domestic terrorism law? I've spoken with uh, peers about this. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that there are uh, sentencing uh, considerations uh, that bring to bear uh, punishment uh, based on a terrorism uh, uh, route uh, in the crime that has occurred. I have not myself uh, observed a lack of criminal statutory provisions to address uh, the conduct itself. So you're uh, saying you don't see the need to go further and create a law, have a law that specifically addresses domestic terrorism? My view at this point, tentative view, is no, we do not. So now that you've heard what the DHS secretary had to say on this issue, he doesn't think that at this point in time a domestic terrorism law is warranted. Michael Chertoff was DHS secretary during the last term of the George W. Bush administration. He is a Republican. And remember, the current DHS secretary is a Democrat, but they are on the same page when it comes to the issue of whether there should be a domestic terrorism law. Secretary Chertoff, thanks for your time. Give us your thoughts about whether a domestic terrorism law is needed. Um, yes, sure. I agree with the secretary. I don't think we need a direct domestic terrorism law. Um, and the analogy is when we're dealing with foreign terrorists, we have a statute called material support, <clears throat> which makes it illegal to help in any way with a foreign terrorist organization. The problem is that if you try to apply that law domestically, you run into all kinds of legal issues involving the First Amendment and political speech, which mean you ha means you have to have a much more narrowly and carefully crafted law to address the issue of violence. As it happens, we have a lot of laws on the books that allow us to deal with people who incite or aid and abet violent behavior. And rather than open up the door to a complicated set of legal issues, Using these well-tested and well-tried statutes gives us plenty of ammunition to deal with domestic terrorism. Do you believe that Congress is in action on the issue of whether there should be a domestic terrorism law has anything to do with the political climate today? I, I think that there's always nervousness about uh, anything that might be interpreted as beginning to touch on political inhibiting political behavior or speech in the United States because of our First Amendment. And I think most members of Congress understand that we've got plenty of laws on the books that would apply to people who actually incite violence for terrorist purposes domestically. We saw that with the uh, Oklahoma City bombing back in 1996. 
Uh, we've seen it in uh, other incidents that have happened more recently. So I think this is a, a problem that doesn't need a solution. We have the solution already. Does the January 6th attack, in your view, meet the standard of the term insurrection, which is a legally defined term? I think the events of January 6th certainly were an attempted insurrection, uh, whether you consider it having the invasion of the Capitol as having reached the level of being an actual insurrection, you could debate. But it clearly was an attempt to overthrow the orderly processes of government and the orderly transfer of power pursuant to the law and the Constitution. So I do think it meets the definition of insurrection. Um, I think that, um, we, as we've seen now, we have uh, a number of prosecutions. I think there are over 600 that are pending. So again, there are plenty of legal tools to be used. But on the other hand, it, we do need to begin to really focus on what are the warning signs that this uh, illegal activity may be continuing. Could you compare or contrast what we're seeing in terms of domestic terrorism today to what was occurring during your tenure? Well, the FBI, FBI director has publicly stated that right now he considers domestic terrorism to be a greater threat than foreign terrorism in the United States. And I believe that's accurate. When I was secretary, obviously, we had just come off 9-11. We were very concerned about al-Qaeda. They were planning other attacks. And of course, we built an entire architecture designed to prevent international or foreign terrorists from entering the U.S. and carrying out another 9-11. We also focused on efforts to incite and radicalize people in the U.S. to turn them into agents of al-Qaeda. Uh, domestic terrorism was not a particularly salient issue when I was secretary. At that point, actually, the country was quite unified in terms of dealing with a common enemy. I'd have to say that now, uh, approximately 20 years later, domestic terrorism is a more serious issue. I do think now um, DHS and the FBI uh, are becoming much more focused on this and are working hard to identify people who might be domestic terrorist threats. But this is going to require, again, a persistence and there are some delicate issues because the ability to collect intelligence in the U.S. is much more legally constrained than the ability, for example, to collect intelligence in, in Afghanistan. So that creates some additional obstacles and complications for the law enforcement authorities. You are accredited for co-authoring the Patriot Act, which gives the government some leeway in those kinds of investigations. Can you tell us what parts of the Patriot Act might enable the federal government to do more aggressive or thorough investigation of U.S. citizens? Well, the Patriot Act was really about sharing information between the intelligence side and the law enforcement side of the Department of Justice. Uh, and it created um, some additional tools for essentially subpoenaing or requiring information to be turned over uh, directly to the FBI. It has since been modified to some extent. Um, I think some of those capabilities are useful in domestic terrorism. But again, because of the sensitivity going back uh, to the 1970s about anything that looks like an investigation of a political movement, you have to be more careful and more precise in your information demands with domestic terrorism than was the case when we were dealing with people you know, in other parts of the world. There has been an increase in misinformation online, and its intended goal 
is to radicalize. Given what is happening online, what is your conclusion about how best to counter that disinformation or misinformation? I'm not at all surprised to hear this because we've been seeing misinformation and disinformation being weaponized over the last several years, both by foreign adversaries and domestically. And it's exactly the kind of tool you use when you want to radicalize people. And and to be honest, one of the challenges with respect to social media is to make sure that their algorithms don't actually become driving forces to encourage people to become more and more radical. Um, And I do think we're going to have to deal with that issue going forward because um, one of the remarkable things about January 6th was that the people who carried out these crimes actually advertised it and boasted about it online. So we now see that there's a whole community of extremism that really is living in cyberspace. Uh, That creates some opportunities to detect that something might be uh, threatened, but it also means we have to be, again, careful in the way we exercise authorities so we don't impinge on what are legitimate uh, debates online. Secretary Chertoff, thank you. In journalism, we try to offer a perspective without offering an opinion. And that's what we're going to do now. Let's take a look back through American history and what happens when you have a group that feels it needs to resort to violence to get its way in this democracy. As we speak, there is a case winding its way through the legal system. Former President Trump and Rudy Giuliani are being sued by the NAACP and a handful of Democratic members of Congress for allegedly inciting the Capitol riot. They allege that Trump and Giuliani violated the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was passed in 1871. Eric Foner is a historian and a professor emeritus of history at Columbia University who has studied the Civil War and Reconstruction extensively. He is also the author of the book, The Second Founding. Eric, are you familiar with the lawsuit filed by the NAACP? Well, I'm familiar with it. I'm not a lawyer. I don't claim to be one. So, um, you know, but I've I've certainly read about the case and I understand what they are trying to accomplish. If you could explain what the Ku Klux Klan Act is. What we call the Ku Klux Klan Act or sometimes called the Civil Rights Act of 1871 uh, or sometimes called the Third Enforcement Act uh, whatever you call it, it was in a response uh, to the um, domestic terrorism, the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that that were running amok in the South uh, in the late 1860s, early 1870s, um, you know, assaulting black people, lynching them, uh, breaking up political meetings, uh, using a campaign of terror to try to overturn the Reconstruction governments that were functioning uh, in the South, you know, that after the Civil War, after a long, complicated uh, battle over this, Congress mandated that for the first time in American history, interracial governments must be established in the South. They gave the right to vote to black men in the South, along with whites. And um, you had many hundreds uh, of African Americans for the first time in American history serving in public office throughout the Southern states. White supremacists found this uh, intolerable and launched this uh, campaign of terror by the Klan and other groups. We shouldn't think of it as a 
totally highly organized thing. There were the Knights of the White Camellia, the White League, all different states had different such organizations, but their main task, or that is to say their main purpose, was to restore white supremacy and weaken, if not destroy, the Reconstruction governments. So the federal government had adopted, or the country had adopted the three constitutional amendments, particularly the 14th, which uh, established equality before the law for all persons in the United States for the first time, and secondly, the 15th, which tried to guarantee the right to vote for black men. Those amendments uh, ended... Those amendments ended with a, uh, a clause, each one saying that Congress shall have the power to enforce this with appropriate legislation. So they're called the Enforcement Acts or the Force Acts, if someone says. But the third of those acts, the Ku Klux Klan Act, which is what's being litigated today, uh, basically may, gave the president the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in the South and use uh, the military against these domestic uh, terrorist organizations like the Klan, uh, and also made the, the federal crime to conspire to um, block people or to prevent people from exercising their constitutional rights. Um, and I think that's what this lawsuit is, uh, is relying on, so to speak, that uh, the allegation that President Trump uh, conspired with others to uh, you know, to overturn the election and to therefore deprive uh, Americans of their uh, legitimate right to vote if the election was overturned. Uh, again, I'm not an, a, a lawyer, uh, but um, I think one of the key points here is that um, domestic terrorism goes way back in our history. Uh, I remember on January 6th, watching TV and, you know, horrified by what was going on as a mob stormed the Capitol, but also uh, as a historian, a little put off when uh, TV commentators would say, oh, nothing like this has ever happened before. It has happened. In Reconstruction, you had a number of cases in which armed mobs uh, did uh, overthrow locally elected governments and had uh, insurrections trying to uh, overturn the Reconstruction governments of various states. Sometimes they succeeded, and um, in 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 you know reversing democratic elections. So um, the Ku Klux Klan Act was an effort to uh, give the federal government the power, the president, the power to uh, to arrest people, hold them without charge, eventually put them uh, on trial in federal court for conspiring to deprive people of their constitutional rights. I'm glad you made that point about January 6th, but let's delve deeper into the Ku Klux Klan when it was at the peak of its influence. Well, after the war, in other words, um, the Klan was founded in, uh, I think, 1866, so soon after the Civil War, but it really becomes a major factor uh, in 1868, 69, once these new governments are put in place in the South, once black men are actively utilizing the right to vote and uh, serving in public office, the Klan becomes, you might say, a kind of an armed wing of the uh, Democratic Party. At that time, the party positions were reversed. It's 150 years or so ago. The, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation, the party of equal rights, the Democrats were the party of racism 
and of uh, you know trying to get rid of these reconstruction governments uh, opposite of what it is today that the you know Abraham Lincoln hadn't gotten a single vote in the South when he ran in 1860 today the South is the center of gravity of the Republican Party but the Klan was a you know a terrorist organization. Uh, they didn't use the term domestic terrorism back then when they were talking about it, but a lot of people were complaining about what they called a reign of terror, you know, armed mobs uh, singling out people, killing them in the middle of the night, riders going to people's homes, burning them down, um, all to demoralize the Republican Party and to intimidate black people so they didn't uh, go to the polls and vote. I think people have this image of members of the Klan in rural areas of this country, but there was a time when they were marching down the streets of Washington. Yeah, that's more in the 20th century, the so-called Second Klan, which arose uh, in the 1920s and became very very uh, powerful, but more in the northern states than in the south. And the Second Klan, yes, there's a famous photograph of these... Um, Klansmen in their white, you know, robes and uh, hats and masks and everything, marching down uh, Constitution Avenue or Independence Avenue with the Capitol uh, in the background. They were open about it. They were, um, you know, displaying their importance. And in several states like uh, Indiana and others uh, or Oklahoma, the Klan basically controlled local politics for a couple of years. The second Klan was more anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish. Uh, yes, it was racist against blacks, but uh, at that time, blacks had very few rights that were respected uh, in the courts. So you didn't have to have terrorism to deprive uh, black people of their political status. Uh, the courts had already managed to do that very effectively. Um, the first Klan is founded, as I said, immediately or soon after uh, the Civil War during the period we call Reconstruction. Uh, and the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 is is a response to that. According to history, the Klan could not have had the power and visibility that it did in the 20s without the support of law enforcement and lawmakers. Uh, it's a good question. And many lawmakers and law enforcement people were quite connected with the Klan, no question about it, sympathized with the Klan or even were members of the Klan. I mean, you could go up as far as you want. Woodrow Wilson, when he was president, um, sponsored a, a showing of the movie Birth of a Nation in the White House. That movie was a glorification of the Ku Klux Klan. It justified the overthrow of Reconstruction. It justified the lynching of black people. Uh, that was shown in the White House. So you don't have to, you know, you can't go any further up the ladder of political power uh, than, than that. Uh, and certainly blacks complained then, as many do today, that uh, law enforcement people were not, let us say, treating them uh, equitably uh, in in many states. It varied considerably. As I say, some of the states, the Klan was really powerful, others it wasn't. Um, but the second Klan was not as violent as the first. It was more intimidation by, you know, burning crosses and marching, as you said, uh, in Washington, D.C. The first Klan was really domestic terrorism. They used violence, assassination, arson, etc., to try to get their way uh, politically. So obviously these members of Congress who've joined this NAACP lawsuit, they are trying to draw parallels. Do you see parallels as a historian? Uh, yeah, of course. History never really completely uh, repeats itself. 
But I think there certainly are parallels. The refusal to accept the results of an election once it's been declared and is over. Uh, the, there's a sort of underlying premise, uh, both of the original Klan and of many of the people who are challenging the elections now, um, that black people are not, their votes really don't count as much, you know, or shouldn't count as much. Uh, if you look at all the, you know, requests for, um, you know, re recalculation of the votes, it's often aimed at black uh, centers like Detroit. Let's recount the votes in Detroit. We don't need to recount the votes in the white areas, but Detroit is a very, uh, you know, heavily black city. So there's something wrong with all those people voting. Well, wait a second. If I could dig into that a little deeper, there are going to be people who listen to this and say that that's not fair, that that is a liberal or progressive view of what is happening. We just want fair elections. How do you respond to that? Everybody wants fair elections. Nobody wants an unfair election. But uh, we had a fair election, and every every case that was brought in court claiming that there was you know, uh, election irregularities, fraud, was thrown out by Republican judges, Democratic judges. Uh, no evidence has come to the fore of any significant, um, you know, uh, malfeasance in the, night, in the uh, 2020 presidential election. Of course, people don't nowadays, at least back in the 19th century, people had the courage of their convictions. The Politicians who supported the Klan and Reconstruction said explicitly, this is a white man's government and white people should rule. And there is just no reason why black people should have the right to vote. People don't say that nowadays. We've moved forward, uh, I think, in our, our outlooks. But uh, there's certainly an undertone, an undertone that, um, you know, that, that part of the whole notion of irregularities is too many well, they say to the wrong people voting, you know, uh, uh, immigrants, uh, blacks, etc. Um, so, you know, I don't think one has to look very far to find a white supremacist overtone in the uh, challenges to the uh, 2020 election. But to use your terminology, is there an undertone to the phrase domestic terrorism? And is that why this administration and others, frankly, have been reluctant to create a law? Congress has been reluctant to create a law that defines some of what we've been seeing as domestic terrorism. Yeah, I, I think uh, terrorism, of course, has uh, ever since 9-11, really, terrorism has taken on a certain meaning. And we're not we're not talking about uh, groups that are crashing uh, airplanes into you know, public buildings and things like that. Uh, when And particularly, terrorism is generally associated with uh, people from abroad, you know, like the 9-11 uh, murderers. Um, domestic terrorism suggests that actually we have homegrown terrorists, that it's not just people from overseas, it's not just people of a different religion, etc. We've got uh, Americans who are acting as terrorists in our streets. Um, I can see why people in Congress don't, some of them anyway, don't really want to use that terminology. Uh, personally, it doesn't matter to me what you call it. Uh, you can call it just criminality. You, you know, you can call it whatever you want, as long as there is a, 
a commitment to uh, try to eradicate it, that, you know, there are a lot of armed groups in this country. They're not terrorists necessarily, but they certainly uh, talk about uh, resisting the government and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it's dangerous. We've seen uh, 9-11 was not the first act of terrorism. Go back, uh, what is it, 10 years before that, maybe fewer, uh, seven or eight years before, and you had the, the um, Oklahoma City bombing. That was domestic terrorism. That was uh, guys who were here, red-blooded Americans. They didn't hop a plane somewhere else. Uh, they blew up a federal office building. They killed about 160 or some odd people. Uh, that was a warning about the possibility of domestic terrorism in this country. And uh, the January 6th insurrection uh, is another warning that we need to um, pay attention to. Eric Foner, author of the book, The Second Founding. Thank you. Certainly. Pleasure to talk to you. Mary McCord is the former Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security and currently the Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy at Georgetown Law. I asked her about domestic terrorism, this national security threat that is only increasing as a focus of the FBI. Why isn't there a domestic terrorism law? Well, I can't answer the why um, so much as I can uh, explain, you know, what it means to even ask the question, because there are a lot of terrorism laws on the books. There's some 50 plus laws um, that are that are considered um, federal crimes of terrorism, but none of them apply to the most common type of domestic terrorism, which is acts of violence done to intimidate or coerce the civilian population or to influence the policy of government through intimidation or coercion if those crimes are committed using a firearm or a vehicle, unless they're connected to a foreign terrorist organization, uh, when it, which of course would not be considered domestic terrorism, even if it happened here in the domestic U.S., or unless they're targeted at U.S. government officials or U.S. government property. And if there's a, a to plot to murder a government official, that's considered a federal crime of terrorism. So just to put that into you know plain speak, if the El Paso shooter had pledged by it to the leader of ISIS before he committed his mass shooting, he would be charged with multiple terrorism crimes. But he didn't do it for in furtherance of the goals of Islamist extremists uh, or ISIS. He did it to further his own white supremacist ideology. And so there is no terrorism crime that applies because he used a firearm. Um, and so there just simply isn't anything under the terrorism statutes in the U.S. Code. But should there be something that applies to the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? So... Um, you know, there's lots of statutes that apply to those crimes, and we've seen those, uh, many of those used. We have lots of different charges that have been brought against the insurrectionists. What we haven't seen yet is seditious conspiracy, which I actually think speaks pretty directly to what went on at the Capitol. Um, historically, the government has not been real successful in seditious conspiracy cases. I think oftentimes that's because they've been inchoate. And what that means is it's been a plot that has been um, thwarted before an actual attempt to engage in, in the sedition. And so 
uh, juries sometimes have a harder time with um, inchoate crimes that haven't actually happened. But here, when we're talking about the January 6th attack, it happened. We all can watch it on video. We can all listen to it on audio. And so the notion that, you know, this, that it would, so I don't think it would be terribly hard to prove that the, uh, that people who went there and participated in this, uh, that attack were engaged in a seditious conspiracy. So we haven't seen that used. I know that's a little bit roundabout way to your question. I guess my point is there are there are statutes that apply, I think, very directly to what we saw there. So I don't think this is a gap for which we are desperate to fill it with a with a domestic terrorism statute. All of that said, their actions meet the definition of what domestic terrorism is, uh, at least the actions of those who engaged in violence, because we're talking about using that violence to intimidate and coerce or to um, try to influence, clearly try to influence government policy through intimidation or coercion. They were trying to influence the Electoral College vote and, and prevent it from being actually counted and certified for President Joe Biden. So clearly using intimidation. So I think it's okay for people who want to sort of refer to that as, you know, that was terrorism. It was intended to intimidate or coerce and interrupt official government proceedings. But there are, but there are crimes that apply to it, even without a terrorism statute that applies. You know that there are going to be people who say, well, listen, after 9-11, there was this rush to come up with all those terrorism laws in the wake of that attack. But with January 6th, because the suspects are predominantly white, you have a Congress that is reluctant to even consider whether this was uh, an event in need of a law like a domestic terrorism law. That if there were people of color storming the Capitol, there would have been a domestic terrorism statute on the books a long time ago. So it, it's, a, it's a good question because I've been talking and writing about this since I left the Department of Justice in 2017. And I first started writing about it after a white supremacist ran his car into a crowd of racial justice protesters during the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And I said, that's domestic terrorism. And because he used his car, there's no domestic terrorism charge that applies. And maybe we should have a moral equivalency between, you know, white supremacist extremist violence in the U.S. and, uh, you know, foreign extremist violence, which is predominantly for purposes of international terrorism means Islamist extremist violence. Like we are lacking that moral equivalency. But the more I spoke about uh, the gap uh, by not having an applicable domestic terrorism law, it was civil rights community, the civil rights community, persons of color who said to me, I'm worried that if Congress were to pass a domestic terrorism statute, it wouldn't be used against those white supremacists. It would be used against uh, at-risk populations and, and, and people of color. And even though I still think it would be a useful tool, the opposition that I have heard over the last three years primarily is actually from the civil rights and civil liberties community. That's really interesting. So they're concerned that a statute like that could be used against people of color. I mean, certainly we can look back in history and, and we see, you know, dramatic government abuses. And I think that's part of it. But I think even the opposition is even more, you know, in the current times, the, the trust deficit right now between law enforcement and the communities they are charged with serving is really 
very high. And that's not just a result of those abuses of the, you know, era of the civil rights movement and COINTELPRO. It's also because of police brutality and, um, other police abuses of much more, you know, recent vintage. And so the concern is simply that, you know, we just don't trust the police and police will find some way to use any new criminal statute against us rather than against the true threat. And so even though there might be other ways to deal with that, um, you know, robust oversight mechanisms, ensuring that law enforcement, particularly the FBI, if we're talking about a federal statute, is using its resources to put toward the real threat and, you know, uh, FBI Director Chris Ray has been very clear about the real, real threat. He has said that you know domestic uh, um, violent extremism is at their highest threat level, um, at, on a par with or even a greater than international terrorism in terms of the threat here in the United States, and that um, among domestic extremists, violent extremists, it's racially motivated violent extremists that present the greatest threat. And among racially motivated, it's white racially motivated. So there are things you could do to ensure that the FBI is actually putting its resources toward the actual highest threat, which is white racially motivated violence. But even that has, in many respects, not satisfied the civil rights and civil liberties community, which I think speak loudly and clearly about the the distrust um, that they have and that they would rather, even though their own communities are oftentimes the the victims of white supremacist violence or other extremist domestic extremist violence. They'd rather have us the status quo than you know take take some sort of action that would result in um, creating a new crime. We've had more than six hundred people charged in connection with January sixth. Based on what you're seeing, do you think the people who've been charged are being held accountable? to the fullest extent of the law? Um, I think it's a massive investigation, a massive uh, a number of resources that the Department of Justice and the FBI have put toward the investigation and to bringing those who are most culpable uh, to justice. The, um, obviously, at the very beginning, right after January 6th, you saw, you know, the charges brought really quickly for the most readily provable offenses, right? So you can just look on a video. If you can say, if you can identify the person, you have a readily provable offense uh, right there if they, if they entered the Capitol. And so then as time went on, you saw some of the charges getting added, you know, adding to those charges when, when you could show that there was, you know, attacks on law enforcement officers or violence used or, or, or um, property stolen from the Capitol, things like that. So we saw um, some of the charges, you know, the levels of charges be raised, and that was appropriate. I think the next step for law enforcement, I think they're engaged in this now, is, you know, who were the plotters and planners? Are there conspiracies we can put together? And there have been conspiracies charged. Um, members of militia violent extremists have been charged. Other conspiracies have been charged. Uh, there, there hasn't been an overall overarching conspiracy, and I'm not sure there ever will be such a thing proven, because even though there was tons and tons of planning online, it doesn't really appear that it was any sort of single leader to this. Um, So I don't know that we'll see this. So I guess my my long-winded answer to your question is, I think that um, many, many people are being held accountable. I think there will probably be some who slip through the cracks. Um, 
I think the government does have to make choices with its charging decisions because the volume is so great. There are so many, over 600, right? That's a lot to have to get through the court system. Um, the judges are also, I think, feeling strained by that. It's not a reason not to bring righteous cases, that's for sure. But I think, you know, just as a matter of resources, there's, there's um, you know, decisions that have to be made about charges. So even though I've said I'd like to see and I think the evidence would support seditious conspiracy charges, that for some maybe is perceived as a heavier lift that's unnecessary if they can more easily prove other charges and hold people accountable. So those are the type of discretionary decisions that um, the Department of Justice, you know, engages in. And I'm not surprised to see them them doing that here. So I'm going to ask you a question just because I know that there are people out there listening to this interview or thinking that if you were watching the lead up to January 6th, you know, one could say that there was one single leader and that is, of course, former President Trump. I was there that day on January 6th when he spoke to the crowd, and I could see the change in their demeanor during and after his speech. I could see it. Obviously, his tweets leading up to the event called for people to come. So when you say that there wasn't a single leader, one could argue that there was. When I was talking about no leader of a massive conspiracy, I guess I what I was really meant meant was more of the traditional um, criminal justice definition of conspiracy, right? So um, I was, you know, so far we have not seen. Um, and any one individual like getting to the level of organizing, you know, people to come and plotting logistics and, uh, you know, that the things that you would expect in a more traditional conspiracy. There's no question that the former president's um, incitement was a major, major factor in how many people came on January 6th and then what they did on January 6th. Um, you know, he urged them to come. He said it would be wild. He he doubled down on the stop the steal rhetoric after the election. He'd already been seeding the narrative for that, uh, for a rigged election um, before the election and doubled down afterwards and, you know, his pressure on Secretary of State Raffensperger and other things leading up right to January 6th showed very much that he was a motivating force for those who showed up. And then, of course, that morning, um, you know, his his uh, telling the crowd, you know, to, you know, fight like hell and and not let this happen and not let this election be stolen and that he was going to walk with them down the street to the Capitol. There's no question in my mind that that um, incited many people to do exactly what what they did. Um, being charged with conspiracy, and, and I've written about this in The Atlantic, I think that certainly the president's actions are enough of a predicate for he, him to be investigated for whether he actually, he or his surrogates with his knowledge played a more um, you know, a bigger role in the actual planning um, because things I would want to know is, a, you know, were I still a prosecutor are, you know, what were the communications that he was having with either any of those who showed up that day or with his own surrogates who might have had those communications? To what extent was he aware of how people had been reacting to his own statements since the election? Like, to what extent was he aware of the different rallies and the different threats of election officials, et cetera, that were done on his behalf, um, and a number of other things like that to try to see exactly what his level of culpability is. 
This is me being cynical. How much of the law can be impacted by politics? You know, obviously we're talking about former President Trump here and whether he would ever face charges in connection with the insurrection. I mean, look what happened during the Russia investigation. You were at the highest levels of the Department of Justice. How much does politics play a role in who's charged and who's not charged? So it, it shouldn't play a role at all. Um, and that's why the Department of Justice has policies that, um, first of all, uh, that require there not to be contact between the White House and the Department of Justice when it comes to um, decisions about who to investigate, who to charge, what charges to bring, how to resolve a case. Um, those those communications are not really are not supposed to occur. There's also all kinds of guidelines for investigating, you know, sensitive sensitive investigations, such as investigations of sitting Congress members or sitting elected officials or sitting um, presidents. <laughs> uh, so that that means these things have to go all the way up to the highest levels of the Department of Justice before any kind of investigation like that can take place. So these are all supposed to be. Um, not only protected against undue political influence, but also taking into account, you know, um, political circumstances, I guess, uh, in terms of things like not doing an investigation too close to an election, right, so that you won't influence the outcome and all of these types of considerations. So, um, so there's efforts to have politics not influence it, but, you know, this is the real world and politics does end up sometimes, I think, playing a role. I think it is less of a role in the, I mean, and certainly under the last administration, we saw what appeared to me to be some real abuses of these policies and guidelines and some real political interference in decision-making. We saw that with respect to the Michael Flynn prosecution. We saw that with respect to the Roger Stone prosecution. Um, you know, where career prosecutors had brought cases and, and even obtained, you know, in the case of Michael Flynn, a guilty plea twice, actually, and then just only to have the Department of Justice under Bill Barr, the Attorney General Bill Barr, um, then to say, no, this will all be dismissed. Um, so I think we saw some real abuses, but if it's working the way it's supposed to work, um, and hoping, you know, we're coming back to that rule of law and that independence of the Department of Justice, it shouldn't infect affect charging decisions. That said, we certainly have elected officials right now on Capitol Hill that are trying as, you know, mightily to infect everything with politics. We had Congressman Scott Perry recently at Pennsylvania uh, saying that, you know, the, the January 6th insurrectioners are political prisoners. Um, and in fact, you know, absurdly com- saying that comparing their treatment to the to uh, the treatment of, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and other detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And so that that is really beyond the pale and is a real effort to make things political, even if they're not political. Mary McCord, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. And now Michael Lieberman with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Should there be a domestic terrorism law in the books by now? Secretary Mayorkas says no. It's very consistent with what the Biden administration has said about the need for a new criminal domestic terrorism charge. Um, They have been consistent, including the June National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. They did not call for it then. 
And it's absolutely, Jeff, the right conclusion. Uh, there is no need for a domestic a new criminal domestic terrorism statute. Federal law already has all the different provisions, criminal provisions that they would need. Um, and there has been, in fact, no problem um, arresting and uh, starting prosecutions for the January 6th insurrectionists and others. Whatever good intentions would come from the creation of a new domestic terrorism criminal statute, we believe, and unfortunately history bears out, that the result would be serious implications for free speech, association, and equal protection rights. We believe that such a statute would adversely impact already targeted, marginalized, black, brown, Muslim, and Arab communities, among others. But you're also on to something else, Jeff, because prevention is the key. However broad a statute or however useful and effectively used a criminal statute is, it's so much better to prevent that action, that conduct in the first place. And I think here, the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism is also really uh, important. There is four pillars. There are four pillars in the national strategy that the Biden administration released in June. And the fourth one, pillar four, is all about prevention and about long-term contributions to preventing domestic terrorism in the first place. So we're talking about preventing online radicalization. We're talking about civics classes. We're talking about uh, long-term anti-bias education programs. This is the way to prevent uh, domestic terrorism, to prevent the kind of uh, hate crimes that we have seen. And that's a really important component of what the government and what uh, groups like ours at the Southern Poverty Law Center are trying to do as well, elevate the prevention as opposed to devising new federal criminal uh, domestic terrorism statutes. Michael, thank you. Okay, my pleasure. That is as balanced as you can get. We asked Republicans and Democrats, academics, and the Southern Poverty Law Center about a domestic terrorism law. Surprisingly, they all seem to be in agreement, something you can't say about some of the other important issues gripping Washington these days. That is as balanced as you can get. We asked Republicans and Democrats, academics, and the Southern Poverty Law Center about a domestic terrorism law. Surprisingly, they all seem to be in agreement, something you can't say about some of the other important issues gripping Washington these days. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. If you missed something, don't forget that you can download previous episodes of this show wherever you download podcasts. For now, my thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.